We are living in a new War of the Worlds, and if we don't understand it, it's very likely that we'll be on the losing end of it. Hey, welcome to On My Walk, the reading podcast that helps you capture reading's aha moments and apply them to your life and leadership. If my opening lines seem just a bit dramatic, good, I believe it. Now, don't get me wrong, God is large and in charge, nothing is escaping his notice God's not wringing his hands, wondering if everything's going to be okay. Just read Revelation 19. Our hero does come riding a white horse. He will win in the end. But that doesn't mean I should simply stand by and watch detrimental changes occur when it's in my power to resist them. Now, when I say detrimental changes, I'm referring to the Equality Act, which the House will vote on for the second time, today. And I'll get back to that. But first, I want us to think, how did we even get to this? Now, if you were with me yesterday, you know I introduced the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Truman's a professor of history at Grove City College here in Pennsylvania. And I'm almost finished with this book, but it has been a slow journey because Truman's analysis of our cultural moment is so thorough and so careful, and I might add, so thick. As I mentioned yesterday, the subtitle of his work is this, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Now, Truman is looking at the changes occurring in our culture with respect to sex, particularly the normalization of pornography, homosexuality, and transgenderism. And he's asking, how in the world did we get here? I mean, how did we get to a cancel culture? How did we come to this place where I feel trumps any idea of law based on a transcendent source? Truman divides his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, into four parts. He begins part one, by talking about our rapidly changing culture. And then he moves in part two to what are the underlying philosophical and metaphysical beliefs that have led to the shift in our cultural moment. Then in part three, he looks at the sexualization of the West, particularly how we've politicized sex. And then he's going to conclude part four with what he describes as the triumph of this current sexual revolution. Now, central to his early discussions are three individuals, the philosophers Philip Reif, Charles Taylor, and the ethicist Alistair McIntyre, all of whom raise significant points in understanding why we are seeing the shifts in culture that we are seeing. Now, Truman asks these questions, and I'm going to quote him here. Why does our social imaginary make sex such a basic marker of identity and attitudes to sex such a, such a fundamental test for recognition? Why does the public apparently need to know the sexual orientation of movie stars or their attitude toward gay marriage when neither are particularly relevant to their technical competence to pursue their profession? Great questions. He asked, why is it so important to educate even elementary school children in the taxonomy of sexual preference? It's not always been that way. Now, part of what Truman does is borrowing from the philosopher Philip Reif, 
describe our modern Western world as a third world culture. Now hang with me, this is really important. Many of us hear third world, and we automatically think of a developing country in say Africa or Asia or South America. Well, Reef is going to redefine the concept of third world. He's going to, he's going to take it out of the taxonomy of economic development, and he's going to recast it in the light of cultural morality. And this is very, very interesting and very important. Reef and then Truman will make a distinction between first world, second world, and third world. Now, first worlds, they're pagan, they're fatalistic, their moral codes are based on myths, but those myths hold the stamp of supernatural approval that give real authority to the laws that stand behind them. So, for example, you can think of the Oracle of Delphi uh, that was used in Sparta. Uh, second worlds are those that, he says, quote, are characterized not so much by fate as by faith. And he points out Christianity as an example and how the concepts of justice and mercy are really shaped by the Bible's teaching and he emphasizes, and it's really true, how our law courts still reflect that to a large degree. I mean, for instance, he notes, think how often someone has to place their hand on a sacred text, usually the Bible, and swear to tell the truth. So, this is significant. First and second worlds both base their cultural moral authority on a transcendent understanding, whether that be fate at the hands of, of the gods, that's first world, or faith in a personal God and his revealed truth, that would be the second world. And then he says this. Listen. First and second worlds thus have a moral and therefore cultural stability because their foundations lie in something beyond themselves. To put it another way, they do not have to justify themselves on the basis of themselves. Third worlds, by way of stark contrast to the first and second worlds, do not root their cultures, their social orders, their moral imperatives in anything sacred. They do have to justify themselves, but they cannot do so on the basis of something sacred or transcendent. Instead, they have to do so on the basis of themselves. The inherent instability of this approach should be obvious. Children who ask their parents why they have to eat their vegetables before they can enjoy the ice cream dessert may well be persuaded by the response, because I say so, simply because of the accepted hierarchy to which they belong. But when they reach a certain age and start querying the validity of the hierarchy, then that answer will no longer carry significant weight. The command ceases to have authority when the hierarchy it presupposes ceases to have authority. Reef's point is that third worlds have abandoned the notion of a sacred order, and so the interdicts of first and second worlds cease to have any plausibility because they lack any justification beyond themselves. Reef expresses this thinking as follows. Culture and sacred order are inseparable. The former, the registration of the latter, as a systemic expression of the practical relation between humans and the shadow aspect of reality as it is lived. No culture has ever preserved itself where it is not a registration of sacred order. There, cultures have not survived. 
The third culture notion of a culture that persists in dependence of all sacred orders is unprecedented in human history. I think this is very insightful. Truman is helping us to understand how our culture has come to this point. And this is why we live in a world that is characterized by what Charles Taylor describes as expressive individualism. And all we need to do is think about how people respond today to realize this is true. You know, in 2019, Taylor Swift used her platform at the 2019 MTV Video Music Awards to sing, You Need to Calm Down. And that was her anthem to support LGBTQ+, GLAAD, and the 2019 Congressional push for the Equality Act. And part of her lyrics are these. And we see you over there on the internet comparing all the girls who are killing it, but we figured you out. We all know now. We all got crowns. You need to calm down. Hey, we've all got crowns. We're all equal. Gay, straight, lesbian, bi. In other words, live and let live. Now, Swift's care for people, it's laudatory, but her push for it rests not on an external authority, but on her own authority, how she and they feel about themselves and who they are. And and not so incidentally, she fails to realize that the Equality Act, which she champions while providing rights for the LGBT plus community, actually strips rights from people who disagree with their lifestyle, painting them and ultimately, ultimately punishing them until they fall in line with the pervading cultural view. Now, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor knows third world culture is preoccupied with fulfillment of the individual because there's no greater authoritative source than the feelings of the individual. This is also why people who disagree with, say, transgenderism are not allowed simply to disagree, but are actually bigots in the minds of the people in the LGBTQ community because their moral authority finds its strength not in a transcendent source, but in themselves. In fact, there's no room even to be able to have common dialogue because the authoritative source behind those with differing views are polar opposite. That's why we're shouting over each other instead of having conversations with each other. So, this is getting kind of long, but I'm asking myself, what do I do with all this? Well, you know, railing at those with whom I disagree is certainly not going to accomplish anything. And picking up a few verbal stones like, you ignorant idiot, and throwing them over the wall that divides us, that's not going to help. And just holding on till Jesus comes, well, in my mind, that's cowardly and it's poor stewardship of life. So I'm landing at Acts 17 and the Apostle Paul. In Acts 17, Paul's on Mars Hill and he's walking among those who disagreed with him vehemently. And so what does he do? Well, he doesn't rail at them. He identifies portions of the culture to which he could applaud. And then he finds common cultural ground in our day, let's say the desire for meaningful identity. And then he points them to Jesus, the giver of an identity that transcends any cultural design. 
I think back to the words I highlighted yesterday from Carl Truman. Every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. And I think the appropriate response, at least at this point, is to understand what has brought about the shift in order to have meaningful conversations with those who are living in the shift. You know, this podcast, it's about finding those aha moments. And today, my aha moment is this. No culture has ever preserved itself where it is not a registration of sacred order. There, Reef writes, cultures have not survived. You know, we're living in unprecedented times in human history. Culture is shifting, and people, they don't even understand why. And that extends to politicians who are empathizing with the desire to recognize and protect some people, but have shifted the very basis for that acceptance, not on any idea of transcendent morality, but the morality of feelings. Hey, feelings are real. But feelings are fickle, and feelings are fleeting, and feelings are never a solid source from which to build a solid life or a solid society. Back to Reef's words, no culture has ever preserved itself where it is not a registration of sacred order. There, cultures have not survived. So, let me encourage you to take a step toward preserving the social order and look more deeply into the Equality Act that is before Congress. It's before it today. The feelings driving it will ultimately drive out freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and your freedom to live in a truly free society. I want to encourage you to check out allforfreedom.com, allforfreedom.com, and write your congressman and your senator with respect to the Equality Act, and do it today. And that's my thought on my walk with Carl Truman and the rise and triumph of the modern self. And as always, the question I want to leave you with is this. What will you do with that thought on your walk through life today?